Hi, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. My name is Rebecca Crick Stratton, and I'm the host of this podcast. We have a great show today, but before I introduce my guest, let me tell you a little bit about this series. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, an educational and philanthropic campaign to improve the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. I serve as the secretary treasurer of my tribe, the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux community, and my tribe launched this campaign to work with educators and organizations across the state to bring greater public awareness and accurate understanding about Native Americans and their communities. My guest today is Wayne Ducheneau, a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Nation in South Dakota and the executive director of the Native Governance Center, which is based in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've had the pleasure of knowing Wayne for many years and working with him for a few years. Hello, my relatives. I greet you with a good heart and handshake. My name is Wayne Ducheneau. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Native Governance Center and born and raised on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation in North Central South Dakota, where I'm an enrolled citizen. Um, grew up on a cattle ranch, my parents' cattle ranch, 40 miles east of Eagle Butte, South Dakota, right along the Missouri River. Um, spent my formative school years at the Cheyenne Eagle Butte school system in Eagle Butte, uh, once a brave, always a brave, where I graduated in 1996. From there, I went on to the University of Minnesota Morris and pursued a college degree for four years in political science and history. Um, but just short of getting my degree, I got the call to come home. So my brother Zach got on the tribal council and someone needed to run our family ranch. And a couple of times in the past when we had other folks step in, it didn't go very well. So I made the commitment to come home for family and you know take over the ranch. I did that for just shy of nine years. Um, my brother served a term on the council and then he'd come home and so turned the place back over to him. And that's when I started my career working for the tribe. So uh, kicked off as the general manager of the Cheyenne River Motel. You all know that as Cheyenne Rivers Hotel Enterprise, right? The 40 room motel in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. Um, as I got done being the general manager at the, at the motel, uh, Chairman Kevin Keckler, who came into office in 2010, pegged me to be his administrative officer, where I served just about two years. Um, being the tribe's AO, so think executive director or tribal administrator for our tribe. I oversaw our 70 plus programs and 578 employees at the time. Um, shortly there, or just as, after my second year becoming the administrative officer, I had a group of people in my district, District 4, approached me to run for tribal council. Um, I wasn't going to at first, and then they passed a petition around and circulated it for me, got the signatures required, actually paid my deposit. And so uh, one of the things my dad always taught me growing up is when the people ask, you do, if you're able to. And so I ran for tribal council, um, was elected in 2012, served just under four years on the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Council as District 4 Council Representative and two of those years as Tribal Vice Chairman. Um, and then the opportunity to start up a new nonprofit organization, the Native Governance Center was put my way. So uh, was hired in January of 2016 and have been there since. Nice, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it when you talk about going to Morris and, and your time there and being called home, I think that is a, 
common story across Indian country that I think a, a lot of us find ourselves studies getting interrupted because something at home needs our attention. Um, and being from a, a political family, right, um, yep. where you already have family that serves on council and there's kind of a expectation a little bit that uh, you're going to follow in those footsteps. Did you feel any pressure? I mean, obviously the community called you, but, you know, when you were going to school, did you kind of know at some point uh, you would be home and, and have a leadership position in your community? I, I, I didn't know. I'd always hoped, right? So growing up, um, I like to argue too much not to get paid for it is what I felt, right? So I'd always intended to go to law school, uh, get my law degree, and then come home and serve as an attorney for my tribal nation. Uh, again, when called home early before I got that accomplished, um, I wanted to find a way to work for my tribe, right? And so it started, like I said, with the enterprise work and then within the tribal administration. But I'd always hoped someday that the people would see fit to cast a vote for me and I would become an elected official with Cheyenne River. And so honestly, that was a, a dream come true, a, a lifelong goal. Uh, my father, Wayne, was a two-time chairman of our tribe from 1974 to 1978. And then again, in 86 to 90, he was also a president of the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, my grandfather, Frank, was a four-time chairman of our tribe. He was on our founding tribal council when we adopted the IRA back in 1935. He saw us through probably one of the most devastating times we've ever faced on Cheyenne River, uh, shortly after the passage of the Pick Sloan Act and the creation of Lake Oahe, which flooded, you know, a couple hundred thousand acres of our most prime real estate. And so, yeah, so it's one of those things, I think growing up on Shine River, being Wayne's kid and Frank's grandkid, um, tribal leadership was a calling that I'd always hoped to be able to answer and just through good fortune um, was able to. And yeah, so I think it was something I'd always aspired to. And your family, I mean, they were very instrumental in a lot of things. I know they had a lot of influence in DC and, um, you know, big initiatives were undertaken for your tribe under your family's leadership. So, you know, was that an uh, extreme pressure um, on you to, to kind of fill those shoes and, you know, the community maybe had higher expectations than they would have, you know, of a, of a new incomer? I think so. I think... Um, yeah, so I, I never, it never dawned on me to try to fill shoes. What it always dawned on me to try to do was continue down the path, right? And take the, take the shoes a little bit further. Um, there were, there were a lot of expectations. I, uh, my uncle Franklin Duchesneau, um, who worked in DC from, oh, the early seventies till about 2000, um, most oftentimes he spent working on the hill, there's not a piece of Indian legislation that passed from 1973 to when he left that he didn't have a, a hand in writing. And that, I mean, I'm, you're talking about things like the Indian Self-Determination Education Assistance Act, the uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act, um, uh, the gaming laws, all that type of stuff, right? And so I think that was equal parts curse and blessing, right? So folks know knew that when I came into the role, I had some some knowledge, some experience, some wise advisors that were gonna be able to help me along the line, but it also created great expectations, right? And so trying to figure out how to be the best leader I could be and stepping outside of those shadows was something that was a challenge at first. But uh, the one thing that I truly believe in, believed in then and believe in now, right? Um, 
my work is only as informed as the conversations you have with the people, right? And so I always try to, as much as possible, connect with constituents, visit with them, and figure out how I could be a best service to the folks of Cheyenne River. Yeah, I like that, you know, you said the concept of not trying to fill the shoes, but stay on the same path. I think mm -hmm. that's a great way to look at, uh, you know, following in people's footsteps. So mm -hmm. um, do you have any, like, big influences uh, that, as a kid, you know, people you looked up to or wanted to be, like, idealized sort of thing um, that, you know, helped shape who you are today or the path you were on? If I'm being honest, like obviously like with my dad, carrying my dad's name. So that was always something to try to aspire and live up to. But hearing the, the great tribal leaders that he used to visit with, right? So hearing stories about Wendell Chino and Roger Jordan and some of those other great tribal leaders, uh, your grandpa, um, you know, hearing the stories about all the work that they did, realizing that when I kind of got into this path of leadership, it was one of those things that we're standing on pretty tall shoulders and always wanting to do right by that. Um, anecdotally, uh, as, a, as a nerd, like Luke Skywalker was a big influence in Star Wars on me, right? So trying to find, find the path of good and light. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Star Wars in an interview like this, right? <laughs> um, feel, free, feel free to use that as you want. Uh, and then, you know, when I think about learning about Lakota history in general, like some of our great leaders, um, you know, Crazy Horse, uh, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, um, you know, all, Crow Feather, all of our great leaders that we had for time immemorial and thinking about, it was always one thing, fun, a fun exercise to do is to center yourself in there where they were in time and place and try to think, would, would I be brave enough to make those same decisions that, you know, if not for those, those decisions they made, you know, tens and dozens and hundreds of years ago, we wouldn't be here right now. So yeah, the, my, my influence is wide. Like, and it's also thinkers like, um, uh, you know, I took a lot of philosophy classes in college. So the, the great thinkers of the world. Um, but honestly, I think in my adult life, the biggest influence I had was Rocky Barrett from Citizen Potawatomi. And so, you know, Chairman Barrett, uh, his story really well. But he was kind of a renaissance man, or kind of is a renaissance man I, in the present tense. Um, you know, Rocky was one of those few leaders who had this, this, this great depth of intelligence, who could be a master of just about everything he put his mind to. And he, understand, he understood the importance of um, what it meant to be a leader in, as a tribal leader. You know, it's about, first and foremost, being a good relative. And, you know, so Rocky Baird is definitely someone in my adult life and later in my leadership that I really admired and looked up to. I agree. Rocky is um, definitely a, a leader that we should all look up to. Um, he's done some amazing things for his community. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and speaking of, of that and kind of thinking about professionally and, and your work with the Native Governance Center, and I was lucky enough to get to work with you there for a couple of years. Um, definitely miss some of the, the work that NGC does, but um, I think it would be great if you maybe explain a little bit about the Native Governance Center and the work they're doing and how it came about. Yeah, so Native Governance Center is a nonprofit organization founded in 2015, August of 2015, to carry on the work that the Bush Foundation had started in the region around helping to um, helping tribal nations grow their capacity to exercise sovereignty. 
they learned really early on that this work was going to be more impactful if it was led by and for Native people. And so spinning out a nonprofit organization is the path they decided to do. I actually had the good fortune of sitting on a steering committee that helped advise the creation of NGC. So literally from uh, the first time that the Bush Foundation started conceptualizing what it was to being hired on as the inaugural executive director, I really had a, a, a hand in helping to shape what NGC has become. Um, how we do our work, it's based in relationship, right? And, and when you were here, we had two buckets of work. We've expanded it to three buckets of work now. Uh, we do our work in these three buckets, which are tribal governance support, where it sees us stand shoulder to shoulder with tribal nations, visit with them, finding issues of governance that they're facing, and then bringing our resources to bear, whether it's our in-house expertise, our network of content partners, or our ability to help fund tribal governance-related projects that are going towards helping them grow their capacity to exercise sovereignty. Our leadership development program is uh, with the flagship of the Native Nation Rebuilders Leadership Program, which is a two-year cohort-based model program that takes already established or aspiring tribal leaders and just gives them a few more tools for their leadership toolbox. Um, we've recently made some pretty cool changes to the program where instead of having overlapping cohorts, we have full two-year cohorts now. So the first year, it's still all the nation building training like it's always been, giving them the skills to, to develop their leadership. But in the second year, we're trying to pay more attention to the action plans and the work they do at home and how can we help advise how can we help resource the work that they want to do at Tribal Home that leads to Native Nation rebuilding? Uh, and then our, our, our newest bucket of work is community engagement. And um, one of the things I learned early on in this work, especially running a small nonprofit organization, is folks don't know Indian country, right? Um, we all know the Reclaiming Native Truth research is out there, and there's either a complete gap and lack of infor or information on Indian country, or there's no knowledge at all. And so this community engagement work we've taken on recently is really about how do we educate uh, you know, everybody about Indian country in a positive way? Because the more folks understand Indian country, then the easier it is for our work to get them to understand issues of sovereignty, issues of tribal government, understanding that you know, there, are, there are two sovereigns in the United States, right? There's the United States of America and then there's tribal nations. And so that, that's how we do our work with, is within those three buckets. I think it's important to probably talk about too why governance support is so important in tribal nations and thinking about you know the relative new structure uh, that a lot of tribes have as governance systems um, and and why good governance is so important to keep you know tribes thriving and able to provide services and and the things they need to meet the needs of their citizens. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the history and what led up to how many government, how many tribal governments operate today? Yeah. So, right, the majority of the tribes in our region operate off of Indian Reorganization Act constitutions that were stemmed from a piece of legislation passed in 1934 that saw the federal government trying to figure out how to best deal with Indian, with Indian tribes, right? Um, you know, and what ended up having is most of the tribes, at least in the region we work in for sure, which is Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, adopted boilerplate constitutions that, you know, very similar in structure, very similar in how they set up government. Um, a lot, not a lot of diversity, not a lot of um, separation of powers. Most of the power resides within singular tribal councils, those type of things. Um, and really our work and how we do it, this, this idea of Native, Native nation rebuilding stems from almost 50 years of research right now 
um, that's, that came out of the Harvard uh, Project for American Indian Economic Development. You know, a brief history about that is there's these two geeky white guys that we love, Joe Colt and Steve Cornell, were sitting around at Harvard one day and they struck up a conversation about why are some tribes more successful than others? Um, they reached out to a, a colleague named Manly Begay and decided, you know, it's gotta be about economic development, right? It's, it's resource, access to resources or uh, job creation. That's why tribes are more successful. So they went out uh, with that theory to go research and figure out why these tribes were, why some tribes are more successful. And really early on, they found out it had little or nothing to do with economic development opportunities. It really was about governance and how tribal governments, you know, provided for their people. Um, born of that research are the ideals of five native nation rebuilding principles, which are um, spirited leadership, capable governing institutions, strategic orientation, cultural match, and sovereignty. And so I can go into a little bit more of each one of those things and what they are, if that's helpful. But really what it boiled down to is, is those tribes that govern themselves with those five principles were generally more successful than others. I mean, and there are outliers, there are other things that popped up, but really that's what the research proved. Yeah, and I, I think it would probably be helpful too, maybe to talk a little bit about cultural match and why that's so important in our communities, um, across, well, in all the communities across the country, because we are all so different. Um, and I think here in the Midwest, you know, we've got our Dakota and Ojibwe here in Minnesota, um, but the variety and the importance in that cultural match is a really important piece of that governing structure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when we think about how our tribal nations used to govern ourselves, it was way, it was completely different than how we do today, right? It was more based in familial relationships and kinships. So, you know, with the Anishinaabe folks, it was about the clan systems for us in the Ocheti, it was more about our societies and how we interacted. But the fundamental unit of governance in a in an indigenous society, more often than not, was your family, right? Your, your immediate family, it expanded out to your extended family, and then so on and so forth. And so when thinking about how we led each other, it was, it was way different. It was more relationship-based. It wasn't a popularity contest. It was um, oftentimes leaders were selected by what they did and how they did it and not um, based on promises made, right? So it was definitely a, a different structure than what we, what we, what we have today. Um, I think the importance of cultural match though is to, as we reimagine and reinvest back in those ways of traditional forms of governance, we're obviously not going to go back to the same exact systems, but how do we bring that spirit forward from the past? How do we ensure that we're centering our decisions we make as tribal leaders on the people? Um, and I think that's when, that's how we're going to get more, be most successful as we're looking to develop our systems of governance. Um, cultural match is also about returning language, returning our spirituality, our connection with the land. Um, you know, post Standing Rock, we really saw an opportunity for indigenous cultures to showcase how we are the original stewards of the land and how we are the ones that should be at least consulted, right? About how we move forward in making sure we're protecting uh, our, our, our mother earth. It's the, we only get the one. Um, quick side note on Standing Rock, right? It, it just goes to show that, um, you know, when, when indigenous folks make the same decisions they wanted, like we didn't want a pipeline going in front of our drinking water, how it took thousands of people to come together, tribes from across the, um, not only across the United States, but internationally 
stood in solidarity, right? To make the same basic decision that the folks in Bismarck had made just a few months prior that, hey, we don't want this opportunity to pollute our water system just, just right up, you know, right where we get access to it. And so, excuse me, um, when thinking about those decisions is like, like when we had the capital Chete Shikoin, it was really about returning to those traditional forms of governance. And you, we've seen, at least I've seen anecdotally, like some of that spirit still lives on today. Tribal leaders are thinking differently about their roles and their responsibilities to their community and understanding that when we come together and gather in force, we can be powerful. As you know, there are so many inspiring stories, unique histories, and surprising facts about Native Americans here in Minnesota and across the country. That is why our Understand Native Minnesota campaign launched social media accounts dedicated to sharing this information. Follow our campaign at NativeMNFacts on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about innovative Native leaders and communities, both past and present. And I think that that and thinking about the, the resiliency of our people um, and their ability to adapt. And I think Standing Rock and our ability, you know, the ability of Native people to adapt and kind of harness that power of, you know, in this case, it was social media um, to really raise awareness and bring folks together uh, to, to create this movement. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about our communities is, you know, we, we don't try to stay living in the past or when we talk about traditions and cultural match, it's really a blend or a fusion of um, making sure that we're adapting to the current situation um, but still have roots in those traditional values in our community. I 100% agree. It's one of those things that people often forget. We were the first scientists of this land, and we were nothing if not adaptable, right? So it's just speaking from a Lakota perspective, um, you know, we were we were a people that operated with dogs and travois back in the day, right? That's how we moved our camp. That's how we um, um, got around got around our territory. We didn't see that first horse go across the prairie and, and say, well, that's not our culture, that's not our tradition and shy away from it. Um, we adapted to it, we built it into our culture, we built it into our how we, how we worked and we became a dominant force on the plains, right? Um, we didn't hear the first rifle be shot and go, oh, that's scary, that's not what we do. Um, you know, we, we took that scientific improvement, we mastered it and we beat Custer. Right. And so I think oftentimes people forget that, you know, born in that resiliency is a lot of scientific method. It's a lot about being adaptable. And, you know, that's that's what's led to our resiliency is the fact that indigenous people from contact have been able to figure out a way to um, to survive. And, you know, we're, we're in this position in time now where that resiliency is paying off and you're starting to see indigenous influence come back. We only have to look at this current administration and how many Native Americans are ascending to high positions in the federal government systems. We have in Minnesota a lieutenant governor that's that's indigenous. And you know, one of the things I fundamentally believe is as we as indigenous people return and understand our values and our wisdom and we heal, we're gonna build the systems that heal the country as a whole and eventually the world, right? Um, that's that's some of the stuff that excites me when we think about turning uh, returning to our cultural match. So when thinking about philanthropy's role in helping Indian country, it's really incumbent upon them to do a lot of inner work and inner searching first to realize where did their wealth come from? 
right? More often than not, it came from resources or land given up by indigenous peoples. And when we look at philanthropy in general and on a large scale throughout the country, there are several studies out there that show giving in Indian country is not even close to parity with what our populations are in the United States. And so philanthropy needs to do more. They need to do more work in Indian country. They need to do more work trusting tribal communities or the partners that tribal communities trust, right? So that's native-led nonprofits. That is grassroots. That's the entire gamut. Um, they also, so like the first, like I said, the first thing they have to do is understand. The next thing they have to do is they have to listen. Um, it's something that we say at NGC, our work is only as relevant as the issues that Indian country is facing. And so philanthropy has to be willing to go into community and just be quiet and listen so that they can get that understanding. The third thing that philanthropy needs to do is they need to begin to trust Indian country and understand that when they give Indian country resources, they're gonna do what's needed and do what's best for them. Um, you know, we're long, past, we're long past the time where um, tribal nations are, there should be this era of misuse and mistrust and malfeasance. We are modern, we are capable, and when properly resourced, we can do great things. And then the last thing is, in thinking about providing resources, they need to think about getting beyond just funding parity in Indian country. Um, and they all foundations need to get past the, we can only give our 5%. There are so many ways out there that uh, foundations could get creative in using their corpus, their the money that they live on in different ways and in investing in different communities Get that money out of wealth. Uh, get that money off of Wall Street and get it into the streets. Where, as you're investing in these initiatives in Indian Country, and quite frankly, um, most communities of uh, where disparities exist, invest in those communities. And not only are you going to end up getting that monetary return to make sure that you have the, the resources to be able to continue to give, but you're going to get an added return that you're actually doing great work and investing in work within community. That was. I want to make sure that got said. Thank you. No, I, I think that is important because, um, yeah, philanthropy can play a big role. And here in Minnesota, you know, we have a, a ton of philanthropic organizations that um, really could be helping lift up a lot of the work that's being done around narrative change. And mm -hmm. NGC is is a recipient of of some of that, some of those dollars. I think we probably, we have to touch on the fact that, you know, yesterday the Senate voted to uh, confirm Deb Holland, who is Laguna Pueblo um, as Secretary of the Interior. I think Indian country has been, you know, lobbying for a, a native person in a presidential cabinet, but to, to have a person in this position is a really big deal for Indian country because of the relationship with tribes and the federal government and how much the Secretary of the Interior um, participates in that. I, I think we should chat a little bit about, um, you know, what does that mean to Indian country to have a native person in that position? I think it means a lot, right? And I, and I think just quite frankly, to when Deb and Sharice were both first elected, right? The, the unabashed, indigeneity they brought into those chambers in the federal government, right? The fact that, you know, through 500 and some broken treaties, through uh, efforts to exterminate, to terminate, to forcibly remove us, right? All those things that we have representation now at that highest level. And I think that the best thing about it, honestly, for Indian country, right, is we have someone leading the Department of Interior that oversees the majority of the federal government's trust responsibility to Indian country. 
that understands Indian country, fundamentally within her DNA. One of my favorite things that I read about Deb, right, that she put out, excuse me, Secretary Holland that she put out is that she's a 35, 35th generation American, right? So that DNA that this land has, that she shares with it, is now um, helping to make sure her wisdom is in the right place to help Indian country. And I mean, it's just an exciting time to think about folks at the Department of Interior are going to have to think differently about um, how they relate to Indian country uh, because the person leading at the top does have that fundamental understanding of treaties, uh, the trust responsibility of the federal government. And she also understands the importance of hearing the tribal voice in all of these decisions. It's something that I think for the first time, at least in my lifetime, I think we can start having the federal government understand in a different way. They need to get away from providing services to Indian country and get into the business of growing capacity in Indian country, right? They, uh, many federal agencies in the past and even today speak of tribal sovereignty that they respect tribal sovereignty, but they don't wanna do the things to increase tribal sovereignty. They wanna do things that increase dependency on the federal government. I think now that we have Deb or Secretary Holland at the heading Department of Interior, we can really start having conversations about how can the federal government just live up to their trust responsibility to grow capacity in Indian country. And I think too, it, it's worth mentioning that as the confirmation hearing was going on and you know the nomination process was out there, uh, there was some you know very hesitant people uh, mm -hmm. to have a Native American leading uh, an organization like this, uh, you know, the Department of the Interior. And I think when people think Native Americans are going to lead, they're only going to lead on behalf of their people. But I think the philosophy of Native leadership and ensuring that, you know, the next several generations are cared for and that the environment is cared for. And it's really a, a leadership style that benefits everybody, not just Native people. I, I agree. I think um, it's fundamental to who we are as a people, right? Um, think of our great friend Regis Pecos who talks about seven generation mindset and how he frames it up a little different, right? Where um, when thinking about seven generations, put yourself in the middle of seven generations. Some of us oftentimes have the good fortune um, on this earth to know our grandparents, uh, our parents, excuse me, our grandparents and our great grandparents, right? And then some of us are also able in that same lifetime to see our children, our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. And so in indigenous leadership, when you center yourself in the middle of that seven generations, you understand that it's your responsibility to take that wisdom from the past, those past generations, and make sure that you're bringing and moving things forward for the future generations. And then we as a people have always been ones that we make decisions on what's best for everybody, not just ourselves. You're seeing that exemplified in these times more than ever. I think about all the great work that's being done in Indian country in response to the pandemic and how we have tribal governments vaccinating members and non-members on the reservation. They're letting um, tribal members who aren't enrolled with their tribe come and get services inside the, their reservation if they're you know, further away from their home. If it's closer to get to our res, come get your treatment, come get your vaccine here, right? So it just goes to show that when indigenous leaders are, are offered the opportunity to make decisions, they don't do it just for themselves, they do it for the benefit of all. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the, the philosophy of caring for your community. And, you know, your community doesn't just end at an invisible border or boundary. Um, we're part of greater communities, um, whether we're, uh, you know, urban Indian or a reservation Indian, 
uh, those surrounding communities have big impacts on us. And then, I mean, think about fundamentally for Lakota and Dakota people, what, what do we say just about after everything we speak, we say, right? We are all related. And I mean, that's just how we are. Yeah, hello, all my relatives, right? Yep, yep. Um, doesn't matter if they're actual blood relatives. Yep. Um, yeah, so I just switch gears a little bit here. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of inspiring things going on and a lot of reasons to keep doing this good work. Do you have anything in particular that, that drives you to continue to do work for tribal communities, the Native Governance Center, leadership development? Um, Really just, what is your inspiration to keep going? Um, the biggest inspiration to keep going is my kids, right? So it wasn't until I became a father that I understood, I think holistically for the first time, the importance of the work that we do. Um, I think many folks when reflecting on Indian country can think about some of the best projects, the best intentions that ever were failing because of lack of solid tribal governance. And so, Fundamentally, I believe in the research that's been produced by Harvard that in order for our tribal nations to be successful, in order for them to thrive on their own terms and provide the best for our citizenry, our tribal governance has to be strong, right? And so the government's work is important. In order to get strong governance, you have to have strong leadership. And so again, that's why our leadership work is important. And then finally, in order for other folks to begin to understand this wisdom that is Indian, Indian country, like they have to understand the basics, right? And so that's why community engagement is so important. When you bring all those three things together, right? The hope is, the dream is that eventually we work ourselves out of a job. The tribal governments are representing their people in fundamentally stronger ways than they ever have. And they're providing not only for their people, but for the surrounding communities in ways that are yet to be imagined. Yeah, hey, there, there's a lot to, be inspired about right now too. Um, despite being in the middle of a pandemic, I think Indian country in general um, has really moved in in a forward direction in you know creating more visibility around uh, tribes and Indian people and kind of you know changing the narrative and ensuring that accurate histories are taught and. And some of the the work that's being done. Um, why do you? Why is this important work? Why is the narrative change work important? I think it's important because the powers that be have done everything they could over the last several hundred years to erase the existence of Indigenous people. Um, and why it's important for us to tell our own stories is because no one knows our stories better than us. It doesn't make sense, again, to reflect back on history books, for instance, that are still used in today's modern curriculum that talk about the Trail of Tears as the voluntary march, right? That talk about Dakota removal as, you know, a mere afterthought when we're thinking about Minnesota history in particular. And so the work around Native narrative change is, is fundamental to helping to having everybody understand the importance of indigenous folks. Um, understanding our, our influences from the earliest concepts of the United States of America, um, where the founding fathers of the United States borrowed heavily from the Iroquois Confederacy and the great law of peace. Not a lot of people realize that there's so much similarity between that law and the constitution, and they got it from having interactions with indigenous people. Or when I think about historically back in those days when 
after they adopted the constitution and they separated out from Great Britain, how the United States used treaties with Indian countries as a ways, at least in my opinion, as a way to raise their stature on the world stage. Because what did they see? They saw uh, England come over, they saw France come over, Portugal come over and initiate treaties with tribal nations as, as, sovereign, as sovereign to sovereign. And so what did the United States do when they became a country? One of the, some of the first things they did was enter into treaties with Indian country to raise their profile on the world stage to say that these, uh, these original sovereigns here recognize us, much like they recognize you, England, much like they recognized you, France. Um, that story's lost, that history isn't told. And when accurate representation of our history is absent, that's when the tough things happen. That's why we have this um, prevalence for things like missing and murdered indigenous women and indigenous persons because their systems were designed and created without us. They don't even think about us. Um, we had the, the whole meme blow up last year about we're something else, right? And while there was a lot of great uh, humor that came out of that, because that's a value we have as indigenous people, there's also a stark reality in that, that when tracking some of the most serious things that indigenous people face, we're not even a data set. And so how do we do more to make sure that folks understand that not only do we matter, here's the story that you need to hear. Here's the story you need to know. And it's, it's just important. And I think, you know, when you think about the American dream and what that means for Native people and, you know, you think about treaties and how, uh, you know, it was a government making a, an agreement with a, another sovereign, and in this case, tribal nations, and how many tribal nations were across the country, um, the thought that this was untamed land or that it was empty, um, but realistically, there were thriving Native communities that had, you know, infrastructure, there were trade routes, there were, you know, there were things that people just don't really tie with Indian communities, um, but are part of that narrative that we just don't get in our um, mainstream K through 12 education and really not much in higher education unless you're seeking it out. Um, I think Reclaiming Native Truth, the, the research project that you know Shakopee supported along with a lot of other tribes and organizations to, to get that work off the ground um, was kind of a catalyst in promoting narrative change and looking at all the different things and misconceptions that are out there about Native people and then understanding where the places are uh, that we can make a difference to change that narrative a little bit. And I know you've been um, working, especially here in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, with that project and the We Are Still Here um, Minnesota project. Can you talk a little bit about, about the narrative change initiatives you've been involved in? So I'm excited, and I don't think I'm tooting my own, own horn here to say that We Are Still Here in Minnesota is the first regional effort to imbue narrative change across the sectors described in the Reclaiming Native Truth study, right? So we are working at Native Governance Center to imbue proper Native narrative in K-12 education, governance and policy, in philanthropy, and in pop culture and media. And it's a lot of hard work. It's one of those things that for all of the great relationships in the recent history, the state of Minnesota has had with indigenous peoples, there's also some of the largest disparities in the country in regards to uh, Indian country. 
And so it's fundamentally important that we continue to do this work to embed proper native narrative throughout those sectors so that as people understand more, they start to, to under, realize they need to do better. So um, one of my favorite conversations points, and I think it's something I learned from you, right, is, um, you know, when you're in a people, when you're in a room of people and you ask them, you know, raise your hands if you have treaty rights, right? Yeah. In, invariably, all the native hands shoot up in the air and no one else's. And, but when you explain people that fundamentally is a, a, a treaty, as Brad Harrington um, from Malax best put it, is basically a contract where you and I are putting our integrity on paper, right? And for the last several hundred years and over 500 treaties, one of those sides hasn't been hasn't practiced integrity in those dealings. And when people start reflecting that, oh, that's me, you know, the, the reason I get to have my house where I have it is because the federal government signed a treaty with indigenous people, right? And um, don't get me wrong, there were some unscrupulous deals as well, but more often than not, tribes made arrangements to ensure their long-term success and survivability through treaties. And generally speaking, only one side of those agreements has lived up to that integrity, and it's been Native nations. And I think some of those um, dealings with treaties, you know, have left those disparities, those gaps um, for tribal communities because tribal communities were relying on the federal government to hold up their end of the bargain. And, you know, in many cases they haven't. Our Indian Health Service is underfunded. The education gaps, you know, the Bureau of Indian Education is underfunded. Um, there's just, there's a lot of issues um, that it's no fault of Indian communities uh, that they they can't really get a leg up um, because of some of the, the lack of resources that they were promised. And I think you talked a little bit earlier about building capacity rather than reliance. And that hopefully with you know folks like uh, Representative Davids and now uh, Secretary Holland that that capacity building will start to will start to see some of that rather than just um, you know handouts of of resources and building of reliance rather than capacity. And the the way I kind of think about it is, in the wake of the George Floyd incidents, there's been this bright light that shined on systemic inequity, right? And it's one of those things that we in Indian country have been experiencing since the first treaty was broken, since the first promises was, were unfulfilled. And we now have this opportunity to be able to, with these people, with, with, our, with our friends and relatives in these different positions, to begin to address those systemic inequities in ways that never would, uh, would happen before. Um, you know, one of the, one, another great meme I saw recently was, the one that I can't think of the Secretary of Interior, but they have a picture of this old white guy and Deb side by side, right? And his comment was he was trying to exterminate Indians, right? And Deb's comment is I'm gonna serve for everybody, but with her indigenous lens, right? And so it's just one of those things that it, it almost seems like it should be common sense that the federal government should be in the business of capacity building with Indian country, not just providing services. Um, that trust responsibility isn't about providing services, about ensuring the future success of Indian country. And don't get me wrong, there are things that the federal government needs to provide with for us as indigenous people, tribal nations through that trust responsibility. 
but they should be doing it in a capacity building framework instead of creating that perpetual circle and cycle of dependency. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think some of that, you know, when you talk about um, systemic issues and the discrimination or racism or, you know, things that are really built into our system, mm -hmm. you know, you, you think of the United States and it was built on, you know, lands of indigenous people, their, their communities and economies were wiped out. And at the same time, there was the slave import, and a lot of it was was built on the backs of of slaves. And those disparities um, continue into today and create. And I think we've seen a lot of it, um, you know, racism and um, other issues that kind of keep that divide, mm -hmm. uh, that keep certain groups of people from really realizing that American dream. Um, and I think we saw with, you know, Deb, some of the discrimination, Secretary Holland, uh, that she saw in her confirmation hearings. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what you see as a Native person, maybe some of those microaggressions or, you know, straight out discrimination or racism as a Native person? So specifically, right, with the confirmation process for Secretary Holland, um, I don't know if I've ever been as mad. I watched um, people yell at her, interrupt her in a fashion, quest, quiz her in a fashion that I hadn't seen before. So I, I, in fact, I got so mad, I went back to the tapes on C-SPAN and watched uh, Ryan Zinke get his, go through his confirmation hearing. Not a single person raised their voice to him. There was laughter, there was handshakes, there was patting each other on the back. And it just goes to show that, you know, those, that systemic racism uh, is still alive and well today. I mean, and, and it's so embedded, it's so imbued in some people's perspectives, they don't even realize they're doing it, which is sad that they would take the opportunity to, um, approach a confirmation hearing on that stage with such vitriol that, I mean, it, it got unbearable to watch. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it. I, yeah. I had it playing in the background when I was doing other work, but I mean, yeah, like they literally inspired me to go watch when they confirmed the, the junior congressman from Montana for that position. And I was just amazed. Um, and so again, and so again, that's, and, and then to watch Secretary Holland sit there and with all the strength and power, um, in her DNA, answer questions, not get shook, respond eloquently, respond thoughtfully, not not raise an ire. Like it was just tremendous to walk watch, and it shows that you know goes back to that resiliency we talked about. Goes back to that strength, especially of our indigenous women, right? Like she was literally being screamed at by a group of old white men, and she didn't let her phase her. And it was just it was something true to watch. And then I think more broadly. When we think about all the other systemic inequities that are out there, it's it's born in racism, but racism is only a function of ignorance, right? So again, it goes back to the importance of that narrative change. When when you bring up youth in a in a in a place of ignorance that you know wants to have them see people for the value for their skin color and not their inherent value, 
it's no wonder we're in the situation we are today. And so that's why it's all, it's just as important to continue to push these native narratives for folks to understand that, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to be treated the way Secretary Holland was treated in those by some of those people. Um, yeah, and so it cuts right back to that, that whole core about um, understanding Indian country is so important because we have that wisdom to be able to share to heal a lot. And so, yeah, I think that's that's my answer for better. Yeah, well, and I think too, you know, her poise during all of that, um, that's not probably not the first time she's had that experience. And I think, you know, we've had whether it's somebody, you know, saying you're a, you're a casino Indian or you get free benefits or you don't pay taxes, you know, it's a lot of those misconceptions that lead to that that discrimination um, against Native people. And, and none of those things are true, right? Yeah. But I think we all experience that. And, you know, I, I was hoping that maybe my kids wouldn't experience some of those same things that I did when I was a kid. But um, I think it's very alive and well today, unfortunately. I agree. And it's one of those things that that's why we have to continue doing the work we're doing. We have to, Indian country still has to continue to be that light that shines through the darkness that's going to lead, um, like I said, not only our people, but other people down this path where, again, we are all related. And the more we can get other people to tap into their value systems, because again, it's, it's one of the things that indigenous values are universal, right? It's about love. It's about respect. It's about bravery. It's all the things that are good. And other people have those too. It's just because of this ignorance that's out there, they're, they're able to push that stuff down and, and to talk about those different viewpoints they can have, right? Where you know, you're exactly right there. In the same mind, they'll carry this thing that all Indians are rich in casinos and all Indians depend on the federal government and all Indians are spiritual and connected to nature and all Indians are drunk and losers, right? And why is that? It's because again, there's no true native narrative out there. And that's why it's so important for the work that we do. All right, well, we're gonna wrap up here. And Wayne, thank you so much for being the inaugural guest on uh, our new podcast. It was wonderful to visit with you today. And thank you so much for sharing all your insights uh, and knowledge with us. It was a wonderful conversation. Re Rebecca, truly humbled and honored. And thank you all for your all's leadership and the great work that you're doing. Thank you for joining me for our first ever episode of the Native Minnesota podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Wayne as much as I did. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.